1: fundamentally a pro-slavery document, or was it basically a charter of freedom? That used to be a good final exam question, but in the last few years, it's gone from the blue books to the headlines, argued over by political figures and pundits. Historian James Oakes suggests that the answer may not be either or, and that we can learn more from how the document was actually used before and during the Civil War than from simply reading what the founders wrote. That's what he says in his provocative new book, The Crooked Path to Abolition, Abraham Lincoln, and the Anti-Slavery Constitution. We'll talk with Professor Oakes about it tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com.
2: Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome
1: to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you as usual from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex in Greenville, North Carolina, not from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University because it's summertime and the, the building is open but nobody's there. So I'm here at home. It's May of... 2021. The pandemic is winding down. Hopefully you are vaccinated as I am. I hope my guest is too, although we're keeping social distance as I'm in North Carolina and he is in California. Uh, But even though I'm in the neighborhood of East Carolina University, I'm not speaking for the university or for anyone else. Likewise, my guest speaks only for himself as we always do here. Well, it is summertime. The Uh, students have mostly left town here in Greenville. The baseball team is still playing. And indeed, uh, even as we speak, they're engaged in their conference tournament in one of the most agonizing baseball games I've ever watched. They had a 10-run lead. It got cut down to three. They've got a few runs back, and I think it's the ninth inning. Uh, So if, if in the middle of tonight's conversation I suddenly collapse in a heap, It will be because I looked in the corner of the screen and saw the final score, which by the time you're listening to this, you doubtless know, so let's talk about something else. Uh, Summer is a great time to be an academic. Uh, Some people outside the profession imagine it's like uh, high school summer vacation. You you work at the, get a part-time job at the grocery store or just hang out with your friends. Actually, work pretty much continues, you write recommendation letters, get your fall classes lined up, book requisitions are submitted. Uh, Maybe you apply for grants or work on a book project, but the pace is more relaxed. It is nice, and especially this year, uh, as we return to a semblance of normalcy after the the dreadful year that passed with the the COVID-19 everywhere. I've spent the last couple days talking online with friends, planning a uh, our annual college friends reunion that we've done for many years and couldn't do last year. So it's, a, it's even more fun to plan it uh, this year. Uh, looking uh, ahead, uh, as we always do at this time in the show, to what's coming up next. On June 2nd, we will have Edward Longacre join us for his uh, brand new book on General David Murtry Gregg, whom he describes as the unsung hero of Gettysburg, And on June 9th, Ken Masterson Brown will be with us, returning to the show with his also brand new book, Just Out, uh, Mead at Gettysburg, A Study in Command. And with those two books on Gettysburg, I want to take a quick moment, a personal moment, to dedicate tonight's show to the memory of Rick Barber, uh, who died of a heart attack about three weeks ago. Rick was an outstanding map artist who drew beautiful and functional maps, of Civil War battlefields, and other historic conflict sites. His work did not appear in books. He was not a published author. He never appeared on this show. Uh, But if you're familiar with the board games that simulate Civil War battles and campaigns, then you know Rick's work. Uh, He was especially passionate about the Battle of Gettysburg, having lived in or near the town for many years, His own magnum opus was a game that he not only made the map for, but designed, called Summer Storm. And uh, over the last 10 years, I don't think I've ever visited the Gettysburg Battlefield without bringing my uh, Rick Barber Summer Storm map with me, because it's very small scale, you see individual buildings on it, uh, and you can really follow the battle uh, with that map. Rick had an outspoken online presence, but he was regarded as a friend by everyone who interacted with him within the, the Civil War or larger war game community. And he was at work on a project to produce an epic map, like six feet square. You'd need a giant table for it for an epic game on Gettysburg. It was to be produced later this year. I don't know how far he got with it. I hope it's far enough that it can still be brought to market would be a fitting memorial for him. I never got to meet him personally, but did interact with him online. Always enjoyed what he had to say, and he will certainly be missed very much. Uh, Well, back to the the present. Uh, As we heard from last week's guest, there will be no uh, tours of the battlefield organized by Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. They are still closed down because of the COVID, but The good news is they'll be starting up in the fall, so check out their website and hopefully uh, sign up for their October tour, and I'll see you on the battlefields. I would very much like to do that. You can find out where I'm going to be or what shows are coming up next, as always, from www.impedimentsofwar.org that Mark Gaffney keeps up Mm -hmm. to date. You can buy books there that support the show, and you can uh, donate to the Book and Libation Fund there as well. You can buy the book we're about to talk about, uh, *The Crooked Path to Abolition: Abraham Lincoln and the Anti-Slavery Constitution*, by uh, an old friend of the show, James Oakes. Uh, Jim, are you there? I am here. Good, to talk welcome. To you, Jerry. Uh, good to talk with you. We we were scheduled to talk a couple weeks ago, and I messed up a little bit on that, but it's good to have oh, you I'm back. Yeah. Well, well, we 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 can that. argue over that. Not not at all. I I uh, normally contact guests, uh, you know, right before the show and uh, make sure everything is squared away. And I just sort of thought, ah, you know, Jim knows the drill. He's been on before, and and overlooked the fact that that you're not in New York where you normally teach. You're you're
3: in California. Is right. that correct? Right. So that's correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have a lot of family out in California here, so uh, we took advantage of. The pandemic to get out of Manhattan, which was a terrible that, place to be, and uh, it's in to much more open, spacious um, parts of California and Sonoma, so it's it was a good thing to do. We're going well, back to New York in a couple of weeks.
1: Well, it, uh What about teaching in the fall? Is your school going back to -to face-to-face? Are you doing online teaching?
3: Well, they're doing something they're calling hybrid, (laughs) so I don't know what that means. They can do it face-to-face and or uh, 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 on Zoom, you know, Uh, so it's going to be curious. I actually have a lot of, uh, hybrid might be ideal for me in the fall. I have a lot of Dates, I have to. I have to give a couple of talks in Gettysburg. I'm giving it. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking at one of those battlefield tours you were just mentioning, and then mm-hmm. going to the Lincoln Forum. And I have a few. Or I have to go to Springfield and give a talk. So it may be that hybrid is perfect for me. So I don't have to miss class. I can go class in a hotel room if I need to. <laughs>
1: You know, but there we'll are certain advantages, person, you know. yeah, uh, to being able to to right. do that and and to reach students. Uh, well, I will say I'm looking forward right, to meeting to back. Say. Go ahead. Right. Well, I have to
3: say, I I, I, I only teach uh, PhD seminars nowadays, so right. th- that works fine for me. When you have ten you know, PhD students That's who all do the reading and are interested, it's not so hard to have a Zoom meeting. You can get up and leave and get a glass of water and you come back, and the students are still talking. But my, under, my my graduate students who teach undergraduates they can't stand it. They can't wait to get back into the classroom. They can't they can't feel the interaction with their students. They can't tell who's listening, who's not, what's getting through. So it's a very different experience for most college teachers than it is for me. I, I, uh, uh, everything I know tells me that. So.
1: No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think with working with graduate students is, is certainly a different uh, story altogether. Yeah. Um, in fact, I was going to ask you, I'm, I'm teaching a constitutional history course uh, uh, up to 1880 uh, in the fall for undergraduates, and I need to mm-hmm. find a, a book. I've been using a book I'm not wild about, so I'm looking for a good book uh, to use as a baseline for the students. But uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, we shouldn't talk okay. shop at the listener's expense. Um, but it was actually Talking Shop that brought you here because on a, 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 I was doing a show uh, earlier in the year, and I mentioned the, uh, uh, the exchange of essays between Sean Wilentz and, and Kevin Gannon in New York Times, and I think it was in 2015, right. And I, I referred to that during a show here in February of 2021 and used your name in vain, pointing out that you, uh, based on your book, Freedom National, I, I suggested you took the position that the Constitution was an anti-slavery document. And you quickly emailed me to say, no, that's not exactly right. Read the current book, which I've now done. And I see that isn't quite your position. Uh, it No, it's not. It is,
3: Give us no, the, my, position the... is, my, my position is that the Constitution is, uh, is, had pro-slavery clauses in it that we all know about, uh, un- mm-hmm. undoubtedly uh, 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 pr- protected slavery in some very important ways, but that it was also understood to contain anti-slavery clauses. Oh. That it gave Congress the power to close down the Atlantic slave trade, it gave Congress the power to ban slavery in the western territories and uh, uh, and based on the that that that's that's what the compromise is right It's a compromise it? between pro-slavery and anti-slavery forces at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in seventeen eighty seven so uh, the basic argument of my book is that we should not be surprised if coming out of uh, uh, that convention, uh, which produced a constitution that had both pro slavery and anti-slavery clauses in it, uh, you got conflict over what the constitution actually was, what it said, and that over the course of the next several decades, leading right up to the Civil War, post-slavery uh, and anti-slavery forces uh, uh elaborated on an, an increasingly antagonistic set of arguments about what the Constitution had to say about slavery. And from that developed a well-known pro-slavery constitutionalism that we're all pretty much familiar with, if we're familiar with, say, the Dred Scott decision. But that we, uh, you know, I don't think we are as familiar with the anti-slavery constitutionalism that is reflected, for example, in the two dissents on the Supreme Court from the uh, 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 from Taney's opinion, and I try to uh, I try to show how. Uh, that anti-slavery constitutional tradition developed over the course of those decades, how it increasingly colonized more and more parts of the Constitution, in particular the Due Process Clause, uh, which becomes very important, but also the preamble and the Fourth Amendment and the Tenth Amendment. And out of that comes a tradition that Abraham Lincoln does very little to invent, but a great deal to articulate. And and, uh, uh, and basically absorbs, adopts, uh, when, especially when he goes back into politics in the 1850s. And I guess the basic, it, it goes back to the book you mentioned, Freedom National, and that was a book that was mostly about the Civil War, and which I came late to the realization that, um, you can't understand what Lincoln and the Republicans are doing about slavery during the Civil War, if you don't have some sense of what they thought they could do when they went into the Civil War. And I would have thought that that was a relatively uncontroversial proposition, right? It's just the standard thing that historians do. Where They don't make everything up whole cloth. The Civil War presents people with all sorts of contingencies and unpredictable turns of events and but but that the way people respond to those events depends on where they come from, and in the case of Lincoln and the Republicans, in this case Lincoln, uh, they come out of an anti-slavery constitutional tradition.
1: And you know, as you say, it shouldn't really be surprising that people argued over the Constitution that they found. Different uh, versions of it uh, right. that they could work with this what you describe as popular constitutionalism. Uh, we will. Mm-hmm. I, I want to ask you more about that in just a moment. Um, just as, as we're about to go into a break, but I, I wanted to say, uh, in your preface, you point out that you you've your thinking evolved on this. Uh, indeed, you, you say you, you changed your mind on some issues, uh, and as I was reading that, I thought, where where has he been? Does he not know that in the 21st century, if you are exposed as uh, in in thinking something you know that isn't right, you double down on the error. You 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 immediately uh, <laughs> proclaim it louder than ever that, uh, regardless of the evidence, you now think even more strongly what you thought before. Uh, you know, you're acting like an academic and not a politician when you change your mind because you found different evidence. Um, but I guess uh, that that's appropriate to do here. Anyway, uh, I, I, I want to get back to the point on, on, on popular constitutionalism, but we will take a short break. Okay. Uh, we'll be back in just sure. a minute talking more with our guest tonight, James Oakes. He is the winner of the Lincoln Prize, among other things, and for tonight's purposes, the author of The Crooked Path to Abolition, Abraham Lincoln, and the anti-slavery Constitution. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Stimulating talk. Gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com
2: Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: Attention, veterans. Are you ready to be your own boss? It's time to launch your own ideas into reality. Discover your clean writing style. Gear up with Marine Corps trained motivator, Christina Silva. Christina is a positive energy promoter with a special gift in connecting with innovators. Get the Military Heroes 411 and glean from experts every week by listening to The Christina Silva Show. We're educating our veterans live on The Christina Silva Show, live at 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil
1: War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with James Oakes, author of The Crooked Path to Abolition, Abraham Lincoln and the Anti-Slavery Constitution. So, Jim, the title, Anti-Slavery Constitution, is... You've you said is not meant to say that the Constitution was an anti-slavery document, but that rather there, there were multiple constitutions depending who's doing the talking, the interpreting, the right. the, the the arguing. Um, right. Where do we get an, an anti? Slavery constitution from the, the pro slavery one you mentioned already three fifths compromise, fugitive slave mm-hmm. clause and so on. Right. Uh, where 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 do we get an anti slavery
3: constitution from? Well, I'm gonna I'm I'm not gonna say where I think it came from because I'm not gonna speak as a law professor interpreting the document on my own. I'm gonna say how people at the time of the ratification debates in the Constitution, Convention, in the ratification debates understood it. And, and one of the things I discovered was that anti-slavery people in the North, by and large, welcomed the Constitution, particularly they welcomed the fact that for the first time, uh, uh, the Congress was empowered to take control of the Atlantic slave trade away from the states where it had traditionally been lodged and allow Congress to ban it. And they held that up. They believed at that point, before there was a cotton gin, before the cotton kingdom exploded into existence in the, in the 90s, in the 1790s, they believed that that was, you know, the first big step towards putting slavery on. What Lincoln called the course of ultimate extinction. You know? They assumed, coming out of the Constitutional Convention, and it's, as did the as did the pro slavery Southerners, that the Constitution gave Congress the power to ban slavery from the territories. They had banned slavery from the Northwest Territories in 1787. They had, they, they reaffirmed that ban in the first new Congress, and not really until the Missouri Compromise did Southerners. Uh, begin to say the Congress didn't have that power. And that's the story that, of the origins of a pro-slavery constitution, right? But you, start, you start getting an increasingly antagonistic positions. Right? And so you see, you really do see uh, a pro-slavery and an anti-slavery constitutionalism emerge in the debates over the Missouri Compromise in 1819, in 1820. I think yeah. that's the first time you see what looks like the rough outlines of a general argument about the Constitution—one being pro-slavery, one being anti-slavery. That's where they start saying, you know, the spirit of the Constitution is reflected in the Declaration of Independence and the principle of fundamental human equality. And that's where they're quoting the preamble and saying that that's that's what the Constitution means. It guarantees. Uh, this secures the blessings of liberty to everyone, and things like that. But they also start, you know, citing very specific clauses. And and they will cite more and more specific clauses over the coming decades, they will say. Can, can Constitution I... empowers, con-
1: yeah, sure. Did, did I jump in on that point about things, you mentioned the spirit of the Constitution. Uh, before getting to the specific things, the, the, I was really struck reading this book about the how much that's not in the Constitution that still becomes part of the argument, Um yeah, we, we can do this today. You can ask any anyone, you know, what part of the Constitution says all men are created equal, and you can make your friends feel foolish if they're not uh, historians because they'll, they'll get that wrong. Uh, no part says it, of course, um,
3: but the, but well, but you just well, said it depends on people, how you read the Fifth Amendment. Well, well, it depends on how people. The Fifth no person Go shall ahead. be denied life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Right. Is that, mm-hmm. Where does that come from, right? That's how anti-slavery people read that, right? Sounds yeah. like the Declaration of Independence. It sounds Exactly. Like but anyway, but you're right, you're absolutely right that some of the most important premises of, of both post-slavery and anti-slavery constitutionalism uh, are not in the Constitution, mm-hmm. so the the most important one for my purposes, for anti-slavery purposes, is is what what we call the federal consensus, right? The idea that yeah. Congress has no power to abolish slavery in a state, right? And and that's there from the very beginning in the ratification debates and every major debate uh, up until the Civil War. Uh, every anti-slavery person you could name will eventually say uh, Congress has, does not have the power to directly abolish slavery in a state. And that has obviously profound implications for what anti-slavery politics could do, right? The, on the other hand, hand uh, we know that in 1857, Tawney declares, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court says that the Constitution expressly recognizes a right of property in, in man, and property in slaves, the constitutional right to uh, slave property. But it doesn't. It doesn't say anything like that. In fact, if you take Sean Wilentz's book, uh, uh, if you if you accept it as I do, it not only does it not guarantee a right of property in man, it it quite deliberately does not, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, this absence of a right of property in man also becomes absolutely central to understanding anti-slavery politics. It's the central theme, for example, of Abraham Lincoln's uh, famous uh, Cooper Union address in early 1860. I mean, he's determined to show that the founders deliberately left a pro- did not allow a right of property in man into the Constitution, and if that and that has a profound implications for the politics of slavery as well. The, you know, the, the, the absence of authority to interfere with slavery in the states, and the absence of a property right. It's hard to imagine anti-slavery politics or pro-slavery politics or any politics of slavery without those two principles. Neither of which is explicitly
1: stated in the Constitution. But everybody so you, says or, Yeah, but, but everybody says that. Everybody says, and that was another striking thing about the book was realizing, you know, yeah, he's right. It doesn't say in the Constitution Congress can't interfere with slavery in the states, but it was so widely accepted then that we widely accept it today, uh, and, and accurately right. so because we're talking about what they thought then, but. Uh, you use another it's, phrase in the book, the anti-slavery project, uh, right. to, to to sort of capture this. Well, what How do you define that?
3: Well, it's it, if you start from the assumption that Congress cannot abolish slavery in the state, but you're anti-slavery and you want the federal government to pursue anti-slavery policies, then the question is, what can it do? And uh, uh, the most, uh, it's starting in the immediate aftermath of the Missouri crisis, abolitionists began to sort of posit a general set of policies that the Congress could undertake that they believed would put slavery on a course of ultimate extinction. Right? So it can't abolish slavery in the state, but it can ban slavery from the territories. It can inhibit fugitive slave renditions by making sure that the slaves are guaranteed due process rights when they cross into a free state. It can abolish slavery in Washington, D.C. It can deny admission uh, of any new slave state to the Union, which was the issue in the Missouri crisis. Uh, So if you take all of these policies that are possible under the Constitution, short of abolishing slavery, Directly in a state, that's what I call the anti-slavery project, and it it, it changes a little bit over time over the next forty forty five years, but more or less remains the same. That is, uh, someone like Abraham Lincoln will, over the course of his career, argue before he becomes president, endorse the abolition of slavery in Washington D.C., endorse the ban on slavery in the territories. Uh, uh, move towards defending the right, the due process rights of of, of accused fugitives, or, you know, call for a, a aggressive enforcement of the uh, uh, repression, suppression of the Atlantic slave trade. But he accepts most of the project. Not all of it, but most of it. Uh, and he does so on the basis of a well-developed theory of anti-slavery constitutionalism.
1: Now, you point out he doesn't accept all of it. He doesn't for example, you know, call for disobedience to the Fugitive Slave Act of eighteen fifty. No. Um, no. Or the, or repeal the, it. He doesn't even call even for repeal. repealing it.
3: Right. So so we call we're, for revising it so as to ensure that the privileges and immunities to which all citizens are entitled are not are not obliterated by the law. Which is to say he's calling for, for due process rights for accused fugitives. Which was the reason other people were saying it should be repealed, or the 1850 law should be repealed because it didn't allow for due process rights.
1: And so the, the idea of treating uh, fugitives in the North as you know refugees from slavery, as uh, entitled to those due process rights, was you know a a revolutionary uh, anti-slavery step uh, to take. Right. But but the 1850 Act you know expressly. Limits that, right? Uh, yes,
3: the, and the, the vast majority of Northerners voted against that law, well, and it yes. produced, a, as you know, produced an uproar in the North.
1: Yeah, the you mentioned Dred Scott uh, in the first section, and that sort of encapsulates the the pro slavery constitutional argument. Right. That, that Tawny makes repeats a lot of it, and and. Uh, by the 1850s, you've got this co- counter-constitutionalism that ex- right. expressly argues that that the Constitution, the founders intended for slavery. Uh, well, they obviously knew slavery existed, but they intended for it to continue to exist, to die.
3: Uh, uh, right. but to die eventually.
1: Right. Well, well, the, but the pro-slavery side argues no, no that they. Oh they, yes. Oh yes. They they don't see that at all. Oh. They they. Uh,
3: no, they don't say that uh, but, at all. No, not at all. But actually, about they slavery think, dying, I'd maybe the Constitution go, go is providing the slave was the only form of property that is explicitly protected in the Constitution is slave property, and the only the only item that is that the Congress is cannot interfere with in uh in commerce for twenty years is slave property. Right? The the Fugitive Slave Clause explicitly protects. The rights of slaveholders, so it's not—it's not an unreasonable argument based on nothing. And there is, there are things in the Constitution that anti-slavery constitutionalism goes, pro-slavery constitutionalists go to, and with reason. Uh, it's just that so, there's other things in it, and they're also saying there are things in the Constitution that aren't there, uh, uh, so, and they're drawing the ta- inferences that.
1: By the time we get to the, the war era, the late 1850s or by 1860, right. um, you suggest that Lincoln in particular and others supporting the anti-slavery project are really focused on limiting the expansion of slavery uh, more than anything else. That is what we'll put it in the course of ultimate extinction. Uh, although you suggest that Lincoln underestimates the profit, pro- profitability of Slavery in 1860 that, that simply limiting expansion would have taken a very long time to end the institution. Is that, is that your view?
3: Yeah, I think so. I, I, I mean, there are others who think that it would have died, but most, most historians I know think that without the war and, mm-hmm. and the radicalization of anti-slavery politics, that a policy that the war provoked, uh, slavery would have gone on for quite some time. So, so i don't i don't see I don't see that 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 would have done it on the other hand, who knows what would have happened if the Republicans were able to maintain control of the federal government without a war and and increase their control to the point where they could keep going, like for example uh shutting down the domestic slave trade they could, there's all sorts of things that were sort of in the background of anti slavery policy. So I could imagine either scenario in which the anti slavery policies become increasingly aggressive, even without a war, or I can imagine that the Democrats come back to power in 1862 and the whole thing fizzles. So it's it's in the context of the war that this policy, that this project is undertaken and and is radicalized.
1: Well, and that's really, and, and it's crucial. Um, you know, as, as Clausewitz tells us, war is the province of chance. War is the province of contingency. Nobody expects uh, the results so fundamental and astounding, as Lincoln will say. Right. Uh, but but almost immediately, things begin to happen that allow the anti-slavery hmm. project to to fulfill itself in unpredictable ways. Can can you talk about how that
3: ball starts rolling? Yeah, in in some ways, it's it's. Quite predictable, right? They the the first the I mean the Congress the first regular Congress controlled by Republicans that comes into session in December of eighteen sixty one adopts the anti-slavery project, right? They abolish slavery in Washington, D.C. They ban slavery from the Western territories. They require the state of West Virginia to abolish slavery as a condition for admission to the Union. They sign a treaty with Great Britain's finally suppressing the Atlantic slave trade. In that simple sense, they do what they've promised to do. Uh, but they were also warning, uh, and one of the things that comes out of the pre-Civil War period was the what I call the, the failure, the, the, the forfeiture of rights doctrine, right? Mm-hmm. That you start to see slowing up in the 1830s uh, from abolitionists. That is to say, uh, 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 in response to Southern threats of secession, anti-slavery Northerners would say, if you secede from the Union, you will forfeit whatever constitutional rights you do have. In particular, that means you will not get your fugitive slaves back. And Lincoln explicitly says that in a speech in eighteen fifty nine uh, in in Cincinnati, and he repeats it in his inaugural address. says so quite clearly you know uh, uh, you complain that you can't get if you slaves back, but if you secede from the Union, your fugitive slaves, now only partially returned, will not be returned at all. So the warning is there right uh, 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 and and we know that within the a month or two of Fort Sumter. So that policy begins to be adopted by the Lincoln administration, the famous incident in which uh, three uh, three slaves uh, escaped to Fortress Monroe in, 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 uh, in Virginia, and Benjamin Butler, the Union general, refuses to return them to the owner, asks uh, for permission to have done that, uh, from his superiors in Washington Lincoln calls a special uh, session of the cabinet and the cab- and after the session is over the secretary of war telegraphs butler and says it's approved you do not have to return your fugitive slaves and and there are numerous instances over the next year or so that we know about in which union generals and officers do in fact return their slaves but what we haven't fully uh, appreciated is the fact that those those incidents tend we tend to know about them because someone has complained that that officer has done that and and in some cases they like in the case of charles stone for example they're held before congress and drummed out of service and 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 uh maybe even unfairly and and mostly because of their pro-slavery uh, politics and, and meanwhile, thousands and thousands of slaves on the peninsula in western Missouri, in Arkansas, you know, uh, are 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 coming into Union lines and are not being returned. Uh, uh,
1: the they they are and the they're politics. they're following the example of those those first three guys uh, right. on the peninsula at Fort right. Monroe, which um, right. we're about to take another break. Uh, but uh, let me interject quickly. Uh, right. Two weeks ago, Mike Collins, the astronaut, uh, passed away. We all know who Armstrong and Aldrin and Collins were, uh, the first uh, to the moon. We know those names, so we should probably know the names Frank Baker, James Townsend, Shepard Mallory. Those are the first three guys uh, to, to go to Fort Monroe, and they were, in, in some ways, just as brave as Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins. And, and uh, their their mm-hmm. bravery had almost as as it as much impact, uh, so it's, it's worth saying their names uh, as as we go forward. Uh, let we'll take another break. We'll talk more about the crooked path to abolition, Abraham Lincoln and the anti-slavery constitution, written by our guest tonight, James Oakes. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk
0: Radio. <laughs> that's p r o k o p o w i c z g at e c u dot e d u. Now back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with James Oakes, author of The Crooked Path to Abolition: Abraham Lincoln and the Anti-Slavery Constitution. So. Jim, by the time we get to 1861 early 1862 the the anti-slavery project is, is the idea of, of ending slavery through constitutional means uh, short of an outright ban that, that as you, you said was uh, generally assumed not possible uh, up to that point uh, now these things are being fulfilled especially that the refugees from slavery are not being returned you point out that, that loyal before the Emancipation Proclamation, at least, uh, uh, owners of slaves who were loyal to the Union didn't necessarily lose their property. They, they had the right of recaption. They could go into a Union camp and reclaim right. human property. But the soldiers found a way to make that uh, difficult without actually, uh, uh, without actually right. it being policy.
3: It, well, it became increasingly difficult over the course of the first year of the war, uh, uh and one of the things we see soldiers doing is the famous incident in which uh, the, uh some Maryland slaves escape uh from a loyal owner to Washington DC and union soldiers carry the slave with them over uh into Virginia because if the slave enters the uh a union camp from the from the seceded state of Virginia the presumption is that uh, the the, the loyal owner that that's a disloyal owner or a disloyal state. They're free. Mm-hmm. So there are various ways in which union soldiers thwart individual masters from who are loyal and from loyal slave states. And even the loyal slave state thing is tricky as the whole Missouri business shows, right? The state is in yeah. half the state is is at war with the union. So uh, over the course of, you know, of the policy starts with if you know it, uh, uh, slaves of loyal owners from loyal slave states are still covered by the fugitive slave clause of the Constitution and the Fugitive Slave Law, but that breaks down very quickly. I mean, if slaves from Maryland run into Washington D.C., it becomes very difficult for owners, owners to. To get them and to figure out where they are, find them in the middle of a large black, free black community, and things like that. So it's 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 very difficult to maintain that. And by March of 1862, Congress passes a law and basically says it's illegal for anyone in the Union Army or Navy to, in any way, participate in the capture and return of a fugitive slave. So uh, if, if fugitive slaves are attracted. To the Union Army because they have come to learn that they won't be returned. Then the Union Army, you know, marching through Maryland is going to be a magnet, and, and it just, you know, it just, it's, it's, it's slavery melts as, as as when Union officers, you know, we march in and the slave slaves march out with us. I guess that's, you know, that's that's true. That's true. How it goes. just disappears when when the Union Army marches in. Right. You you, that, you yeah, referred to,
1: uh, I'd say Jim Lane is a character you you mentioned uh, who tends to show up right. in Civil War books as sort of a comic relief figure uh, from the border, right. but but you say he's got a bit of a more serious role.
3: Well, yeah, he was in Congress. During the discussions over the first Confiscation Act, which uses the language of forfeiture and says, you know, uh, disloyal slaves used for the purposes of supporting the rebellion, the the owner forfeits the claim to the person's labor, which is the constitutional language of a slave, right? Person held to service. Uh, And so you forfeit the claim. And he was there, and he fought Openly and fiercely, against any attempt to mitigate that policy, and as soon as that first session of Congress ends in early August of eighteen sixty one he goes back to Kansas, forms the Kansas Brigade, and begins invading the western uh, across the western border of Maryland, marching the Union army in and the slaves attracted to the Union army marches the back out into Kansas, and thousands of slaves follow him. We have lots of newspaper reports. The reason this is particularly interesting to me, because that's mm-hmm. happening everywhere, what's interesting to me about that is that it's happening at the same time everybody's talking about Fremont, and Lincoln's, you know, order to Fremont not to, not to, uh, you know, to revise his order emancipating slaves, but mm-hmm. at almost exactly the same time, he's allowing Lane in western Missouri to do... What Union soldiers are are allowed to do under the policy, so it's 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 a much more complicated picture. I think the focus on Fremont has been misleading in the sense that it it doesn't quite get at the nature of the policy that is already evolving by in the first year of the war.
1: The border states really are, are critical to to the whole issue, um, right? Where, where how? did they fit in with the idea of fulfilling the anti-slavery project?
3: Well, that's interesting because uh, abolitionists long believed that uh, 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 slavery was weakest in the border states. The evidence uh, is that it is declining. The slaves are, are being, you know, ex-surplus slave populations are being exported from the border states and ultimately from the from the eastern states down into feed the expanding cotton economy in the Deep South. And from that fact, uh, abolitionists came to the conclusion that though, that when the federal government adopts, really does adopt, you know, aggressive anti-slavery policies, those would be the first states to go. Those would be the first states to pass laws abolishing slavery uh, on their own, which is the pr- purpose of the anti-slavery project. And, you know, we know from Bill Freeling's work that the southerners were quite aware of that tendency and were concerned deeply about the loyalty of the border states. And as it turns out, correctly, right? they couldn't get this is a this is a society that is called into existence for the purpose of protecting slavery. And they couldn't even get all the slave states to join in. I mean, no free state is going to join the Confederacy, but but Jefferson Davis and you know assumed that Kentucky naturally belonged to, uh, to and Missouri naturally belonged to the Confederacy. He couldn't get them. He couldn't get Maryland. Though he was never going to get Delaware. He couldn't get Missouri. You know, and and uh, 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 so the anti-slavery project always focused on those states, and Lincoln sure. begins to put pressure on. Oh, go ahead.
1: Well, I would say when Lincoln, you mentioned in the first inaugural, when Lincoln says, "You know, you complain about not getting your fugitives back now, after secession, and you're not getting any of them back," that doesn't right. resonate with someone in Alabama nearly as much as somebody in Kentucky, uh, whose slaves yeah. are right across the Ohio River from Freedom yeah. Land. Right. Uh, so, that's so, right. so the, that's addressed directly to a border so state when he says that.
3: Yes, that's right, and 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 we know from the debates among uh constitutional unionists in the upper south that that was precisely the argument that the slaveholders who opposed secession in those states uh, uh put forth right you the constitutional rights you have now you won't have if you if we secede from the union and join with the other deep south states you know that's what People in Kentucky were saying. Slaves in Kentucky were sometimes saying. That's what they were saying in Missouri. That's what they were saying in Southern Louisiana and around New Orleans. You know, we can't leave because we we will forfeit our constitutional right to the recapture of our fugitive slaves. So it's not something. It's not something that wasn't known. It's not some unusual doctrine, you know, that Lincoln dredged up from nowhere. It was a mm-hmm. widely understood concept that, that you secede from the union and you lose the constitutional right you have. The crucial one being the right to the return of your fugitive slaves.
1: Now the 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 strength of the, the federal consensus idea, the the idea that the federal government can't abolish slavery, only the states can do that. Just has remarkable staying power during the war. You suggest that even after the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln is still thinking oh, yeah. in terms n- not of a federal act, but of getting each state individually to abolish slavery. Is is is, is that fair to say?
3: That, oh yeah. It, it's uh, one of the things. It's important. This is one of the reasons why the the the, the Corwin Amendment for so those. That was proposed during the secession crisis as, as <laughs> the original 13th amendment didn't really do anything. It didn't give the Southerners anything that they didn't already have because all it said was that, that, uh, the Constitution cannot be changed in such a way that Congress can abolish slavery in a state, right? We, the premise even in the wording is that you already have this, right? And we're just <laughs> going to put it into the Constitution. So the, the, the Southerners who were pushing for secession weren't impressed because they had no reason to be impressed because all the anti-slavery people freely conceded that Congress didn't have that power. Now, that means that for Lincoln, that meant that even an Emancipation Proclamation wasn't going to be enough, right? right. So, so uh, 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 this gets back to these larger questions of contingency versus inevitability and the like, you know, I, I, I think of the Civil War as necessary, but not sufficient to get slavery abolished. Right? And, there, and I don't really believe that abolition is in the bag until at the very earliest, Lincoln and the Republicans win the 1864 elections. Because if McClellan had won, the, the abolition amendment would have stopped. And you would have right. ended up at the end of the war with 15% of the slaves emancipated. Right. So uh, I, I, it's very important to know that just because I'm tracing the origins of an anti-slavery policy, uh, I'm not even coming close to saying that it was inevitable. The, the outcome that we see was inevitable, because I don't believe it was inevitable. Um, so... So Lincoln knows that after he issues the Emancipation Proclamation, he's aware of its limitations. And and halfway through 1863, he begins to pressure the states, even in the Deep South, even in the seceded states, to uh, abolish slavery on their own. But now he's got an Emancipation Proclamation that he can use as a weapon, saying, look, I'm going to start emancipating your slaves in large numbers. So, you know, get control of this project. You know, ahead of time and, and start abolishing slavery on your own. And, you know, I don't think it's, it's adequately appreciated how successful that policy was and what the significance of the success is. That beginning in 1864, um, mm-hmm. the first states to abolish slavery, slave states to abolish slavery since 1804 begin abolishing slavery. Now, Arkansas does it. Maryland does it. Uh, uh, Tennessee does it. Uh, Missouri does it. Louisiana does it, right? And by January of 1865, that made all the difference in the world for the prospects of ratification. Because we know it takes three quarters of the states to ratify a constitutional amendment. So when, when the war begins, there are 18 free states and 15 slave states. Uh, and that's not enough to ratify a constitutional amendment of abolishing slavery. But by 1865, by late January of 1865, when Congress finally is able to push the constitutional amendment out to the states for ratification, there are 27 uh, 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 states. There are 27 free states and nine slave states. That's three-quarters. Right? Pushing yeah. the states to get slavery abolished has the effect of making uh, a national abolition possible. Right. So that the, the, it's ironic, right? The whole premise is ironic, that, that the federal consensus does not allow Congress to abolish slavery in a state, and at no point during the Civil War does Congress abolish slavery in a state. Rather, in that sense, the federal consensus is both an obstacle to abolition, but is also the means by which an abolition amendment is secured because you've got to get enough states to abolish slavery on their own so that when ratification comes, those states will ratify.
1: That is a fascinating argument, and one of many in the book. I'm sorry to say we're at the end of our hour so quickly, uh, but the idea of how how slavery does finally come to an end and how it is tied in to the, the intellectual construct of the, the anti-slavery project uh, just I just enjoyed this book thoroughly. I found it very thought-provoking. Uh, listeners, you will too. It is called The Crooked Path to Abolition, Abraham Lincoln and the Anti-Slavery Constitution. It's written by our guest tonight, James Oaks. Jim, it's always a pleasure having you on the show.
3: Uh, thanks for having me, Jerry. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. It's lots of fun.
1: And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.